Philly Built is brought to you by phillyzoning.com, which is powered by Anastasio Law. Our offices are located at 2016 Spruce Street in Philadelphia. The history of Philadelphia, like the history of any great city, is written in stone for anyone to read. If you're a registered voter living in the city of Philadelphia, chances are you're getting political mail delivered to you on a regular basis. And if you look closely enough, it'll say, many pieces will at least, paid for by Philadelphia 3.0 PAC, Political Action Committee. Well, today we're going to talk to the PAC Executive Director, Ali Perlman. We're going to talk about the long-term goals of increasing the city's population to 2 million people and the short-term goals of sending three new individuals to city council as at-large candidates. And then we'll unpack the legacy and the impact of outgoing city council president Daryl Clark and what it means for Philly zoning. Allie Perlman from Philadelphia 3.0. Welcome to Philly Built. Hey, Vern. Thanks for having me, neighbor. Well, thanks. No kidding, right? <laughs> um, fellow Bella Vista, a uh, member of Bella Vista Neighbors Association. Tell me, tell us about Philadelphia 3.0. So Philly 3.0 is a nonprofit and a super PAC that was founded in 2015 for the purpose of trying to create the dynamics where change was possible in city council. So as a general matter, up until this election cycle, which I think is a topic that we're going to get into, as a general matter, Philly's city council, in the absence of having term limits, and due to a number of factors on the ground, specifically in district races with regards to the level of influence district council people have over land use and other built environment decisions, there really were very rarely occasions where there were even competitive elections in council, let alone races where an incumbent would lose. And it was our general sensibility sort of as a theory of the case to start out that, you know, that's the sign of a totally like corroded democracy, that you need accountability, that you need competitive elections, and that turnover and dynamism is an essential part of effective governance. And so the organization was stood up with the goal of identifying and supporting candidates running for city council who, frankly, absent external support, like only running the campaigns that they had the capacity to run, really were operating with a low likelihood of success in these races, just because there was historical evidence that it was like exceedingly hard to win. And, you know, with the goal of finding folks who were maybe by historical standards, non-traditional candidates for council, people who had, you know, really impressive and interesting CVs who had done interesting work, who weren't like in the typical pipeline of running for local office, and see if with the campaigns that they run and the external support we were able to provide, we could get them elected. And we've been operating now for eight years. We're going into, or we are in, I should say, our third council cycle. Having worked in city council myself and even challenged an incumbent, I know change and dynamism isn't exactly something that's embraced by Philadelphia City Council uh, and hasn't been. However, um, let's look at some of your successes so far. Mm -hmm. Were you involved at all as Philadelphia 3.0? What were they involved 
in third district council person uh jamie gothier's win over the blackwell dynasty yep so we um as you know as i mentioned our theory of the case was that it's very difficult and as you mentioned you know this from personal experience it's very difficult for challengers to win and then you think about sort of like the funnel right as a general matter it's difficult for challengers to win it's even more difficult for challengers to win in district races and it's the most difficult for challengers to win in district races where they're running against a dynastic incumbent, right? That's just sort of the fact of the matter. So we were interested in proving that it's possible to get new, young, thoughtful council people, particularly in these exactly these types of environments where you expect that they have absolutely no shot of winning whatsoever, be able to get them in. So we supported, and Jamie is the, the best example of that. So we supported Jamie in 2019, when we started the campaign, honest to God, our polling showed that more people in the third district knew who the incumbent Janie Blackwell was than knew who Mayor Jim Kenney was. Like her I name idea, that. her name ID was higher than his, which shouldn't be a I surprise because she had been in there for 27 years. She succeeded her late husband, Lucian Blackwell, who had also been in for 27, 54 years of having a Blackwell in that seat, right? <clears throat> So we supported Jamie operating under the premise that voters actually want a choice. They don't necessarily want the same incumbent running and winning over and over again. And and when presented with an alternative, many of them would prefer prefer the alternative. And what we saw shake out in the third district is that's exactly what happened. When voters had an opportunity to choose between two candidates, the majority of them you know, plus 12 points, chose the challenger. And for us, that was, you know, demonstration that we were on to something, that this kind of change is possible. You know, Jamie wasn't going to win without our support, right? She needed more than she was going to be able to do on her own. And, you know, based on the text that I got that night when they called the race for Jamie, it was like a pretty watershed moment in Philadelphia. It was the first time an incumbent, a full-term incumbent in a district race had lost to a challenger since Michael Nutter beat Ann Land 33 years earlier. It was the first time in a generation. And this shift in West Philadelphia in the third council district was, you know, tectonic plates. You know, it was a major shift yep. in the Philadelphia landscape. Yep. Uh, and you weren't the only organization that sort of uh, came up out of the uh, of the progressive or urbanist movement, right? Yeah. There were other groups as well? Yeah, and we're, you know, I think it's sort of easy just because there are, to exactly your point, we're in an era where, like, there's just a, a higher level of political activity, and one of the ways that we see that is just, like, an increase in the number of groups that are doing stuff in this space. So we're coming very clearly from, like, a good government, pro-reform, pro-urbanism perspective, um, you know, less articulatably progressive than some of the organizations that came out, for example, of like the Bernie movement, post, you know, folks who are Bernie organizers and then transitioned into do, staying and doing local stuff. Um, but, you know, our, our general approach has been focusing on the sorts of races and candidates where you can get really, really great challengers in, but that you, you recognize are not going to be able to do it on your own. So that's, where our, that's what our role is. That's our job. 
Do you see a difference? Um, you know, I don't know how long you've had your ear to the ground on this, but um, f- for someone like me who saw the reform movement prior to the Bernie Sanders yep. run uh, and then see it, ap- I see there's a real difference between the reform movement in local Philadelphia politics before Bernie Sanders ran for office in the Democratic primary against Hillary Clinton, and then uh, as compared to the reform movement in local Philadelphia politics after the Bernie Sanders run. Do you see a difference as uh, as I do? Um, I do, and I think that it's, you know, it's pretty nuanced, right? I mean, I actually think it's mm-hmm. more like three-dimensional than two-dimensional. There are kind of two axes that we're operating on here. One axis is just a pure ideological axis, right? Coming out of 2016, there was this like clearly articulatable camp, principally of people who were Bernie's supporters, who were trying to pull the Democratic Party to the left, right? And Bernie was like unbelievably effective, right? And some of the folks that he hired to work on his, at the local level, are unbelievably effective in articulating that viewpoint. So that's sort of like the Overton window part of this. And then there's just sort of like the, I don't know, sclerotic, for, you know, current or former political machine town stuff that's always at issue in Philly. You know, most cities, just like as a parenthetical, don't have a Bob Brady-esque figure, just like as a place right. to start. In New York City and most big Dem cities, the head of the Democratic Party is the mayor. It's not like this other person who runs the party. And so the reform stuff, like the general reform bucket, the good government stuff, that's kind of been a through line for a while. And I do think it ebbs and flows. And I think that some of the, you know, maybe post-Bernie and then especially post-Trump energy that was spurred up around this stuff, um, trying to build a better, trying to build a better way of electing people to positions of power, and then better ways of holding them accountable. I think that we really are in some respects in like, I don't know, maybe like a high watermark of that type of activity right now. Like younger folks just like, I don't know, they just like don't have time for like, again, like this very like old way of doing business, which in many cases is just like, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'm supporting this person for office. Not because I think he or she is particularly good or well-suited, like they're my friend or they did me this favor and I need to pay them back. You know, you have to be a certain type of person for that kind of politics to appeal to you. And I don't think it really appeals much to, you know, younger folks who are active in Philly politics. I think you're right. And, and it, you know, you hit on something that I don't, I hadn't necessarily thought about. I know I thought about it as pre Bernie and post Bernie, but you said something that was interesting. What about the, post-Trump. And you're absolutely right. You saw more um, activity on the street. You saw more boots on the ground. You saw more folks getting involved and engaged. Young people, millennials, Gen Zers even, uh, and younger uh, Gen Xers. uh, Mm Post-Trump, as sort of a reaction to what had happened nationally. So... um, that's interesting. You all are about, you know, a lot about city council. Yep. 
And as you know, we have a, a primary coming up. Do we ever? It just just in a few <laughs> weeks. We're not going to talk about the mayor's race today, and unless you feel a, a, a you know a pressing need to do so. No. But I do want to focus on city council. Yeah. Um, and before we get to some of the individual folks that you've you know 3.0 has endorsed. Um, Let's talk about the most recent elephant in the room is that Daryl Clark, who's the president of city council, has decided to resign, Yep. which led a whole bunch of folks to uh, get on, try to get on the ballot. And at the end of the day, it appears as though we've got one person standing. Tell me what does, just generally speaking, President Clark leaving mean for council as an institution and the city itself? Um, I appreciate the question because I feel like, especially in a moment where we are paying so much attention to the mayor's race, I, you know, I worry that the significance of, of Council President Clark resigning is maybe, it's maybe getting short shrift. It's being lost, certainly, in the media. And it is a, it's like hard to articulate how seismic the change is. Like, just as a place to start. The council president, or at least the version of the council presidency that Clark has like created in a, a bit in his own image, right? That is the second most powerful person in the city behind the mayor, without question. And what we learned during Nutter's second term is that if the council president is interested in wielding power in the effort of really exerting council influence as a veto over the mayor, which is like the inverse of the way that a strong mayor form of government typically and sort of definitionally is supposed to operate, right? He can do that. You know, the best example, of course, is that uh, Mayor Nutter was not able to even get a hearing on the sale of PGW because Council President Clark put the kibosh on it. You know, I think we're going to maybe get into this a bit, but not only his... Council President Clark's tenure shifted power away from the executive office and into council, the legislative branch. It shifted that power from the executive office into the district offices specifically. The at-large council people, they don't have any, from a practical perspective, they don't have any more juice now than they did before Council President Clark was in that role, right when he was just a a district council person. The district council people have substantially more juice now than they did before he came into office. You know, there's no, by way of sort of an example, and we've talked about this a bit, there are very few people in the city who live in a house that isn't, or in a, you know, a house or an apartment that isn't under an overlay, that is a carve out of like a specific type of use that's available or required in one area of one district. There is no longer a uniform definition of what a row home is in Philadelphia. Like, row houses different differ from district to district. I, I yeah, would, uh, for just for the benefit of the listener, uh, Philadelphia is zoned based on what the planning commission, in conjunction with the city council, comes up with. Different parcels are zoned different categories, but then under uh, President Clark. The district council people were empowered to create these zoning overlays, which basically spot zone areas of their district uh, with different rules and regulations. 
So instead of be, uh, becoming a city with one unified code where the rules are consistent and universal and uh, reliable, uh, what we continue to have is a more fractured code with 10 different districts having more than 10 different overlays depending on what neighborhood you live in. So what may be permitted in one community uh, as far as a use is concerned for business uh, may be completely uh, prohibited in another. And as you sort of gestured at this fracturing of zoning and acceptable uses has militated against the possibility of having any cohesive citywide planning. And the whole point right. of the Zoning Reform Commission was that we ought to modernize the way that we do things in Philadelphia in a cohesive way that allow us to plan for the future. And under, right, and under Council President Clark's sort of rule in this capacity, we've moved so far away from that that even the Planning Commission is sort of like tied up in knots a little bit in terms of their ability to create sort of like a unified theory of the case for what development ought to look like as we grow as a city. You're absolutely right. And it it uh, it impedes growth. It impedes uh, folks being interested in investing in the city. And it also impedes an equitable distribution of what it means to live in Philadelphia. Yep. And I think that that is, like in many ways, that is one of the core legacies of this tenure. I would offer as maybe sort of like the second part of the legacy, which may outlive Council President Clark's tenure and may not, which is like this viewpoint that all council disagreements, all controversial matters should be handled internally in advance of the issue actually being called for a vote. In the caucus in the, room. In the, in the hallways, in the caucus room. Right. You know, abiding sunshine laws, but like not really in public, right? And you end up in a situation where everything or nearly everything passes 17 to nothing. You know, we don't have 17 council people right now because of vacancies, but everything passes unanimously or nearly unanimously. Based on councilmanic privilege, uh, based on count- which, councilmanic prerogative, uh, and even non-prerogative members um, matters, stuff that is outside of land use entirely. There are very, very rarely public debates in the context of a council meeting when a question has been called and a vote is about to be held on a piece of legislation, where you hear anything other than council members speaking up in support of the legislation. You don't have the benefit of the legislative process, the public part of the legislative process, being an actual like debate of the ideas. Like all of that stuff is happening somewhere else. And like one, and my colleague John Geating has made this point. One of the interesting downstream impacts of that is that as these folks have resigned to run for mayor, resigned from council to run for mayor, their records look kind of the same. Because typically what you do when you're evaluating legislators who are running for higher office is to see where do they differ? Like where have they voted differently on important legislative matters? But because no one votes differently on anything because all of that stuff is handled behind the scenes, their records are kind of the same 
So it makes it much more, where's the evaluatory criteria, right, for voters? It makes it very hard to look at someone's past performance as a predictor of their future behavior, because the past performance looks exactly the same. Yeah, and practically speaking, it's actually pretty difficult for someone, uh, for the average voter to get online somewhere and give a couple clicks on a on a council person be they a, a district member or an at large member and actually see their yeah. votes i mean the access to the voting yes. record and we have two district council folks and i believe two at large council folks uh, we have three, we have, we have three at large three at larges okay you'd think it would be pretty easy to find out online what they voted for while they were in office it's incredibly difficult the uh the software it's called legistar it's sort of like i don't know i'm gonna like date myself here but for the elder millennials who are in college it was like blackboard like what you use to access it's like this very difficult to maneuver interface but in some respects we have always kind of historically suspected that like that was a feature, not a bug, with respect to Legistar, making it, to your point, really difficult and kind of counterintuitive and certainly inconvenient for just like a normal person who isn't like a weirdo like we are who thinks about this stuff all the time. Just like right. go and like right, noodle right. around. You can't noodle around. Like it takes you like 30 minutes to just get your bearings, right? And at that point, yeah, those I mean, are like, my no, mom should be yeah. able to. My mom should be yes, able to do absolutely. this, you know, yeah. uh, you know, on her computer when she decides who yes. to vote for for, for yep. city council no and question. for mayor. She should be able to do this, and um, you know, I certainly have a yep. difficult time finding what yep. I need to find. Let's talk about yep. city council, uh, the the race three point I noticed uh, endorsed uh, first Job Itzkowitz, who actually was. Uh, featured here on season one of Philly Built when he was the executive director of old, the Old City District. Uh, and Aaron Santamore from Chestnut Hill, who worked on previously discussed uh, uh, council member uh, Alan Dom's uh, uh, office yep. staff. Uh, tell me about those two choices. Why did you pick uh, those uh, two um, in particular? For a, a few reasons and going in some kind of particular order. Firstly, because, and we've gestured in this direction, but to put a finer point on it, there is gonna be tremendous turnover in council, just as a function of all of these folks resigning to run for mayor, um, council president Clark just resigning, period. There's gonna be tremendous turnover and we're going to be entering a new term with a new mayor. And so one of the things that we were prioritizing and our endorsement process was folks who have, and this is a sweet spot, right? Folks who have experience working in and with government, who can be ready to step into the job on day one, but who aren't coming in like married to, again, sort of the the status quo way of operating and are themselves like really creative thinkers and problem solvers. And, you know, there was an interesting point of intersection in their work you know, Job and Aaron in this case, during the pandemic in the context of streeteries, where they were both highly involved in efforts to try to create opportunities for restaurants to open streeteries to enable them to stay in business during the pandemic when people wanted to eat outside. And the regulatory roadblocks that the city threw in their way were 
substantial, but this was a group that was really able to do, you know, yeoman's work, getting to a place where restaurants were able to operate outdoors when it was essential to do so to stay in business. We're also just like really interested in, again, sort of their vision for the city. They subscribe to the idea that Philly ought to be growing its population, that Philly is best served for being a city that's in a, you know, a an opportunistic in growth mode as opposed to a mode of decline. Um, And they're just really good, thoughtful people who I think are going to bring really important new perspective to city council. Again, especially with the level of turnover and an ability to really start to move on some, some of the city's, you know, biggest and most intractable issues without much of a learning curve, which is a huge benefit. Yep. I mean, it. Uh, not that it matters, but I happen to agree. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we had Job on last season. Um, it's one of the reasons why I personally have supported Aaron in the past. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, why 3.0 passed on who would be, uh, I believe, one of the first openly um, LGBT members of city council at large and not endorse Rue Landau. Um, we really like Rue. I mean, Rue has credit where it's due. She's done a remarkable job in terms of her ability to meet with folks in the room and win them over in the room. Like you just have to look at the list of endorsements that she's been able to stack up as evidence in that direction. You know, I think that we just disagree with her on some of the built environment stuff, on some of the density questions and the need to sort of build more housing as we approach the city again from sort of the aspiration of trying to get to a growing city, a city that eventually will have 2 million residents as we did in the 50s and the early 60s. Um, And I think it was, you know, in the way that everyone is in in this sort of oversized marketplace of at-large council people. It's a little bit of a political Rorschach. And you have an ability to be, frankly, fairly bespoke in terms of who you're supporting based on your personal political or organizational vantage point. And we were really confident in terms of the three challenger candidates that Job, Aaron, and Donovan sort of best represented our vision for city council and for the city. Let's talk about Philadelphia. Two million. I love the idea. Um, I, you know, you know, I think the city, the infrastructure, the city itself, the layout were built for two million people. I'm sorry, uh, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be there. Uh, last uh, several years, we've lost thousands. We, we're now uh, we've we're at negative thirty-three thousand over the last couple of years, uh, which is reversing a trend um, of nearly a decade of growth. And I love the idea that 3.0 wants to get involved in pushing policies that will grow Philadelphia, give folks reasons to stay here. Um, what are some of those policies that you're advocating for and pushing to make Philadelphia uh, bigger, yeah. larger, I mean, you, and the, more dense? The thing that's so interesting, the thing that's so interesting about thinking about the two million Philadelphians question is that there is an extent to which it's sort of an Ouroboros, right? Or at least it's a tautology where you want to create the sorts of the sorts of political and policy approaches which would make it compelling for people to move here 
But in doing so, you've created sort of this perpetual motion machine, right? Hopefully, where simply by doing that stuff at the front end and your ability to do it well, the work kind of takes care of itself, or at least that would be the hope. And it's not like an outlandish idea. If we take a step back and we look at the places that are growing, like really growing right now, it's not like those cities are every three or four years enacting transformative change at the local level. They're just doing something really good right now and people want to move there. And the people who have moved there have reason to stay. The thing that's really interesting, if you zoom out, the thing that's really interesting about growth at the municipal, population growth at the municipal level in cities is that it isn't, in most cases, growth in domestic migration. So it isn't the case. So it will, it will always be the case, for example, that more people will move from New York to Philadelphia than Philadelphia to New York. Not because, you know, Philly necessarily has more to offer than New York, although I think we do in many respects, right? Just that there are more people in New York. So even if the same percentage of people left New York than left Philly, we're going to be a net winner there. But a bunch of people leave Philly too to move to other places. What has enabled us to have, as you mentioned, this population growth over the last few years has been immigration, right? So we've like, you'll, you'll sort of, and this is the case in most cities, right? You'll sort of flatline in terms of domestic migration. You're not really going to have much to offer just in terms of like more births than deaths. It really is inter- migration from folks who are international. It's immigrants who are moving here, who are doing this work of helping grow the city. And they need to have a reason to pick Philly. They just need to have a reason to pick Philly. One of the neighborhoods that these folks, a lot of immigrant groups, tend to gravitate towards are neighborhoods in Northeast Philly. And we talked a little bit about, before we got on here today, the Roosevelt Boulevard subway proposal. (coughs) Right. One of the ways that we could best sort of enable the city to grow dramatically its population from just under 1.6 to 2 million now would be to be an even more appealing place for immigrants to move. If those folks are already going to be inclined to move to Northeast Philly, we ought to set the goal of having Northeast Philly being the new Queens, which is a totally reasonable argument for us to make, but it's not going to be accomplishable without, and this sort of gets to your question about what are sort of some of the policy agendas. We're not going to get there without having really, really adequate transit, which we don't at the moment. So you could make the argument, and it's one that I would make, and it sort of conflates two really sort of like ambitious, big policy goals, that the best route for us to get to 2 million people is to build a subway system that could combine the areas that they're most likely to move to with Center City. And we do that by building the Roosevelt Boulevard subway. Yeah, I, I love the idea. You know, the Northeast Philadelphia over the years has been a, a place where uh, there have been uh, immigrants from Russia, Ukraine, India, Southeast Asia. Uh, we're seeing more of a Muslim population now moving into Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, but you also see, and I see it at zoning community meetings, is a mm-hmm. bit of a pushback, um, let's say, of... Uh, new establishments mm-hmm. and new ideas from the entrenched RCOs, yep. registered community organizations, and even somewhat, you know, without 
casting, you know, any aspersions, uh, even from the district council office, with a with an overlay that just uh, okay, more folks of a Muslim background are moving into Northeast Philadelphia. Well, let's ban all hookah lounges, all hookah uh, uh, facilities, so that folks can't congregate without having to go through the variance process uh, in commercial spaces. We're seeing a lot. I'm seeing a lot of that in Northeast Philadelphia, where folks who are coming in don't necessarily Mm -hmm. feel welcomed. Um, And use of the zoning code and zoning overlays to to communicate and that's his, that's um, that's historical that, right that is what zoning has like kind of always done right it allows folks who have an a, the ability to pull a lever of power to use local government control to gatekeep the folks out that they don't want in and that is that was what, what redlining, redlining was, was that is, you know historic that's zoning exclusively for single family not even allowing duplexes, right? It's a like just like yep. Society Hill right now. Uh, this it, is it all, zoning. you know. I feel like this is like, and I listen. I know you. This is what you do, and I just feel like, in a way that, to whatever extent possible, it's, you know, we can evangelize people on the importance of zoning in creating the city that we all want, assuming for the community of people who want 2 million Philadelphians, right? To evangelize how important zoning is and making that possible, I think is like, it's a very important part of the work that we have to do because we're going to need places for people to live. We're going to need places for businesses to open. We're going to need the residents that are required for commercial corridors to be sustainable. We're going to need all of this. Yeah, that's see, and you touched on something, and there's the rub. The fact of the matter is, there are lots of Philadelphians that chair and run lots of local neighborhood zoning committees and civic organizations that don't want right. two million people, that don't want that's the right. multifamily, the duplexes, and the that don't want the apartments, don't want what they consider transients, don't want their cars. Don't want their parking problems. Don't want the congestion and the density. How? Okay, so how does Philadelphia 3.0 and and their mission, your mission, uh, get those folks to buy in to that vision? I think that the essential, it's, it's inadequate, but it's an essential part of solving for exactly the problem that you're describing is by having elected leadership that shares the vision a vision of a growing city. There are multiple housing uses. We can have dynamic commercial corridors because you have sufficient foot traffic and cash flow to support all of the businesses. If you have elected, if you have elected leadership that can clearly articulate and persuasively articulate why that vision for Philadelphia is net beneficial for everyone, even the folks who are skeptical then at least you're starting to reframe the narrative. But I think that there is, you know, gosh, Philly is unique in a lot of respects. And one of the ways in which we're unique, not entirely sui generis, but somewhat unique relative, especially to our Northeast Corridor peer cities, is that we've been a city in decline or had been a city in decline for so long. 
for decades and decades and decades. And for the longest term residents, the older folks who are born here and who've lived here their entire lives, this moment of growth is almost like a blip relative to their experience living in this city. And they, they're, the way that they've grown accustomed to the city is that it's a city that when it changes, the change is in the direction of it being worse. And we need to do a better job talking to people and demonstrating to people that because it's just because historic change has been in the direction of making their lives feel less pleasant and less comfortable and less safe, that isn't definitionally what the outcome of all change will be. Change can be positive. It might be sort of scary at the front end, but change on, it own, on its own isn't necessarily bad. And I think it's just there's going to be, you know, there's just going to have to be some work that we all do in having these conversations with folks. But the only way you can even start having that conversation is by having leaders who are sort of at the helm of it. You need folks who are sort of speaking from positions of power about the way that we can actually do that in concert with folks who are more sort of at the RCO grassroots level, who are willing and comfortable pushing back on sort of like the anti-change dynamic in their RCO or in their neighborhood. Yeah. And for a city, as you say, that has been so comfortable with managing decline for so long, uh, these spurts of change and growth are incredibly yep. uncomfortable. Um, but they're not something that I don't think any we all can't overcome that uncomfortableness, yep. I would think. Uh, and with that, to wrap things up. 3.0, you've got a few weeks left to, uh, until city council uh, yep. is on the ballot and the mayor's yep. uh, race is on the ballot. What are you guys doing? So, talk, talk to me. I'm not going to go into great detail, but I will simply say that we will be uh, running a campaign uh, to support the candidates that we have endorsed. We did our first round of endorsements, which you mentioned earlier in the at-large race, endorsing Kathy Gilmore Richardson and Isaiah Thomas, the two incumbents, Job and Aaron, as we've discussed, and Donovan West, who is our fifth candidate in that in at-large slate. Um, we're going to be making a decision on our district race endorsements. There are a couple of potentially competitive district races. Um, and our goal, of course, is going to be communicating to voters why we think these candidates would do a great job leading the city into a future and you know in particular being the leaders that we need in this moment of generational and dynamic change well i know you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't have faith and hope that this city can be even better yep. than it is today um so i'm not going to ask you if you're bullish on the future because i just by the very nature of what yep. you do i know you are um in getting around the city and doing what you do, I'm sure you pop in uh, for some nourishment every once in a while. Mm. I need to ask you, as the last question of, of the day, is where do you go? for? Uh, give, give us this one spot, your go-to for a really good meal oh, God. For, Like That's a completely unanswerable question. Like, it's almost like a trap. No, it's um, not. <laughs> I'll tell you where we, where we go that's in our neighborhood that we walk to a bunch. So... In Bella Vista, we are obviously 
spoiled, truly spoiled with amazing food options. So just to call out a couple spots. Oh, yes. Uh, bon Me and Bottles, Good King Tavern in the wine bar upstairs. Kalia, before Fishtown stole her from us, was also... A- <laughs> I don't even want to get into Kalai. I, I'm still yes. not talking to Nook, you know? I, I You know, it's like yes. a, a bad breakup. Yep. But... But the Bami and Bottles yep. is fantastic. Yep. It's on South Street, just at what, 6th, I Seven, think it is. 700 block, uh, I think. 7th? Yep. Yeah, really good pho, yep. uh, really good Bami. And Good King Tavern. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, despite its name, it's a French uh, tavern, uh, as French-oriented. Uh, tell us a little bit about Good King. It's, uh, I, good King is at I, 7th and Cater. Right and, on the corner. Yep. And it is more of... Uh, summertime haunt for us because we can sit outside. We have an eight-year-old. We'll bring him and he can sort of just like chill out while we have, you know, some cheese, some mussels, some wine. Um, And it's just like a really, the, the exact sort of spot that makes Philadelphia a city worth living in. Like these neighborhood places that also happen to be delicious and would be the place to go in a lot of other cities. And we're so lucky that they get to just be tucked into our neighborhoods. Allie Perlman, thank you so very much uh, for joining us today on Philly Built. If folks are interested in Philadelphia 3.0, please give us a a website that we can visit. Absolutely. Thanks, Vern, for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Can I have the website? Oh, www.phila3-0.org. Wonderful. Thanks again, Allie. Thanks, Vern. Bye now. Bye. Well, folks, thanks for joining us again for another episode of Philly Built. And please remember, Wednesday, May 16th is Election Day. No matter who you're going to vote for, just get out there and vote. We'll see you next time.